The UCSF Rosamond Institute is a beacon of hope for a healthier and more equitable world. Its mission is to unleash the full potential of healthcare innovation and empower the next generation of game changers. By connecting with a network of investors, payers, mentors, and industry experts, the Institute provides an inclusive platform for innovators to bring their transformative solutions to life. And it doesn't stop there. The UCSF Rosamond Institute is dedicated to promoting equity and serving underrepresented and underserved populations who stand to benefit the most from these cutting-edge solutions. With our partnership with MedTech Venture Partners, a fund that invests in early-stage health technology startups, the Institute is leading the charge in a new era of healthcare innovation. Join us on this incredible journey to improve lives and create a better world. To learn more, please visit us at www.rosamaninstitute.org. So curiosity comes first. And then I would say self-regulation, because if you can't manage yourself, you can't make anything better. And then the third thing is really compassion. It is caring for the other people in a way that helps you always keep the larger purpose in mind and brings them along so that they see that it is worth self-managing to serve the larger purpose. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Curiosity did not kill the cat. Instead, it led to compassion, self-regulation, and conflict resolution when applied in a workplace. According to Liz Kislik, Harvard Business Review and Forbes contributor, curiosity is the first step toward conflict management. If you don't want to know what's wrong, how can you fix it? Today, I'm so excited to speak with Liz about her journey into the management consultant space and her current work as an executive coach. From working with national nonprofits and family-run businesses to Fortune 500 companies, Liz has helped countless organizations to solve conflicts in the workplace and solve their most pressing problems. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Liz. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Christine. I'm really happy to be with you. I'm so excited to have you. And it's nice to talk to you a while back ago. And I thought it would be good, you know, uh, for all our listeners to hear a bit about your background, what excites you, why you chose this field, and all the things that give us some ideas um, you're part of in your journey to get to where you are today. Okay. I'm a management consultant and executive coach, and this was not what I planned, <laughs> as is true for many people. You know, uh, after college, I knew I wanted to work. Many of my friends went to grad school, but I liked the idea of making things happen. And I thought, based on what I had seen, that you could make things happen more easily in business. So I took a job working for a company that I had worked with uh, two of my summers in college, and it was a marketing agency. 
And because it was a small company and I was, um, the expression is an eager beaver and a hard worker, I progressed very quickly. I had a promotion every six months because I was always looking for what needed to be done and finding things to do. It was ex- That was exactly my plan. Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up with very significant responsibilities for a young person, many of which were very challenging. When I was only 23, I became responsible for a 300-employee call center. Very hard work. Um, not my favorite job, mm-hmm. but I learned a tremendous amount. And I was able to go on some consulting assignments while I worked there. And then for a variety of reasons, it was time for me to go someplace else and find a different opportunity. And I realized that I didn't really want to work for anybody else. The whole time I had been there, of course, I reported to someone, but I never really felt like I had a boss. I was finding my own way. And I had a very good reputation in the industry. And so other consultants subcontracted work to me within a week. And it'll be 35 years in December that I've had my own practice. And the nature of the work has evolved from call center operations, which is where I started, to then learning about everything that goes on in an organization and being able to help the leadership develop the organization, figure out how to work well to get the best from employees, deal with the market, and just basically do a good job of whatever it is they're doing. And the ability to work in leadership development and team development and help people do better at work and feel better about it has really been a joy. Mm -hmm. And that's why um, it's it's a blessing or it's a fortunate privilege to find something that you work, that you found joy in it. I think not everybody has that opportunity. It what struck me a little bit what you're saying about, you know, your job that, you know, managing the call center with uh, 300 people, you learned a lot from it. It's not your favorite job. Uh, Tell me more about that. I was younger than almost anybody I managed. I was a very serious young person. (laughs) And um, it was interesting because, first of all, The structural challenges were difficult. Scheduling all the people, making sure all the work was assigned correctly, the things you expect in a management position. But because I was so young, other people also tried to manipulate me from time to time. You know, they they figured I might have the formal authority, but they didn't necessarily have to do things my way or they could uh, convince, persuade, or otherwise force me to do things their way. And I really had to have my wits about me to be able to focus not only 
on the tasks, but on the relationships and have those be as sound and as productive as possible and to know when something was really wrong and to have the strength to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you bring a good point. It's like sometimes you think that you have the position of power and authority. And because sometimes people who manage a team that they are not the direct, you know, the people who are in the team are not their direct report. Sometimes you feel like, well, you know, if they work for me, it would be so much easier because they can listen to whatever I say. But what you just say, you know, that's not always the case, right? And, you know, as many of our listeners and we support a lot of the entrepreneurs who are uh, founders and they are in a position of leadership and authority to some extent and they have to mobilize all the people and oftentimes there's a lot of challenges people are people <laughs> they're not a robot you cannot just turn that tell them to, to go on and off um, so what are the things that you see with 35 years of your consulting work when you work with leadership like the major challenges and how do you coach them it's very much like what you just said Christine you may have the formal authority, but you can't force anybody. You can stop paying them. You can terminate their job. You can change their job structurally. But you can't force anybody, not if you're behaving in legal and appropriate ways. Okay. So that means leaders have to have great clarity about what they're trying to accomplish. They need to know themselves what they mean to have happen in their businesses. But they also have to be able to communicate that very clearly to everybody else. And in effect, be inspirational enough that people want to play the game that the leaders want to play. I work with founders. I work with a lot of family businesses, nonprofit organizations. Very often, the most senior leaders do not realize how much they are not explaining what they mean. In some ways, it's like our parents. They just expect us to understand. I say to my mother, you know, I'm not good at mind reading. (laughs) Our employees are not good at mind reading. Some of them learn to almost do it because they're used to us and they pay close attention, but it's not fair to expect that. And we forget how much we need to explain because what we think is not what everybody else thinks. And the idea of really making clear to other people how we want to be dealt with, what we expect of them what to do if something goes wrong and how to tell us about it and then make it safe for employees to do that. Often employees are really afraid of bringing bad news to a leader. And if they don't feel safe to do that, you can't run your organization properly. Yeah. Not being a mind reader is so important like in any relationship. And I think sometimes when things got really busy and sometimes when you're a startup, you know, you have limited resources, 
people are busy and things need to move fast. And oftentimes you forgot. And do you have like a framework or structure that founders can use during that, you know, pressing time? During that busy time. So I don't have a framework in the sense of here are the things you need to do to make your business successful. Instead, I talk about ways to behave. And a lot of that is because each business leader, as a consultant or in my role as a coach, I treat them as the expert in what they want to accomplish and therefore in their business, even if they need support of other kinds of knowledge or whatever. But helping them recognize that there are certain characteristics or qualities that if they have them, the work will go better. Mm. That's important. So one of those qualities that I think is incredibly important is curiosity. To understand what's going on here and to be wondering that all the time. Sometimes founders, particularly if they are not used to managing people, they think of the staff as a kind of black box. I put an instruction in and the work comes out. But it doesn't actually work that way because, as I just said, they're not always clear about the instruction. They may not be organized to carry it out. They may not all have the necessary competencies. So really learning each person who's a direct report. And in a startup, it's usually small enough. You should get to know everybody and really know them, not just know what their jobs are, but really know them because the more it's clear that you have concern for them as human beings and how they function, the more they're willing to step up for you, even when you're not clear, (laughs) even when something goes wrong. It's like um, making deposits into a bank account in building the relationship so that when the mind reading doesn't work, you can all come to the table and talk about it and repair whatever the damage is. So curiosity is very significant. Candor is important. And I don't mean saying everything. You don't necessarily need to share all the information about the business with every employee. And actually, sometimes it can be overwhelming if founders take employees too much into their confidence when there's sort of nothing the employee can do to help, but they know the founder is stressed or unhappy. That makes them nervous. Will I have a job? You know, is the company going to fall apart? That's kind of too much pressure. But candor about expectations, candor about here are the hard things that are coming next that we need to work together on. All of this is part of the relationship building and the understanding so that everybody needs, so that everybody can tell what their part is in making the work happen um, and how to relate to each other. The other qualities that are so important in a leader are self-awareness and self-regulation. And self-awareness 
is knowing how you are as a leader and what are the things that are disruptive to you and how do you operate when you're under stress. Being able to say, you know, I've been up since four o'clock this morning working on a deadline and I know I'm cranky today, as opposed to if, if you haven't seen this already, know that your employees do this. Whether it's on Zoom or in person, they look at you and they decide if you're having a good day or a bad day. And they tell each other, oh, it's a bad day today. Don't go in there. <laughs> right? Or they know not to talk to you until you've had two cups of coffee. Those kinds of things. They learn that. But if you know it and you can acknowledge it, then you help them help you. Knowing that you get upset when something goes wrong can help you know that you need to take a break before you discuss it so that you're calm (laughs) and can speak politely to everybody as opposed to hollering, which is what you really feel like. I mean, it's totally appropriate to feel like hollering if something goes wrong, but it's not necessarily appropriate to do it. So knowing how you respond and being willing to manage yourself to get the best out of your employees, it's it's worth the mental and emotional energy to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like what you're telling me, all these things is kind of when I think about you know, it's the same thing, you know, being a parent or being a child, looking at the parents. It's very similar, but human, humans are human and different. You put them in a family context, you put them in a uh, work context. It's all, you know, uh, I think being polite, being kind, being candor, um, not assuming things, reading people's mind. Oftentimes you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> so it's always good to clarify and, and now we're in this world. I'm, I'm just, you know, you know, it sounded like I'm a very old and old fashioned. We, you know, we, I, I don't know, maybe I watch way too much TikTok. You see a lot of people who are on the TikTok that was recorded for their bad behavior because I don't know, you know, I don't know what happened in their life. They went throwing tantrum or, but then at the same time, people say, well, they're expressing whatever in their mind. So I feel like now there's, you know, I grew up in a place where, you know, you always need to be able to control your emotion. And, and the other end is like, well, you know, everybody needs to know. And then to a point that is very detrimental and ruining relationship. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. There's a difference between behaving well and pretending you have no feelings. So it's not about suppressing because if you suppress emotions, first of all, they leak out, you know, so you may not be yelling, but you might get that clipped tone or cut people off more 
or turn away or do the things that we do when we're angry and not taking care of ourselves. So they'll know. How much better would it be to say, I'm really angry and upset, and you might not sound quite as calm as I'm sounding when I'm saying it now, but I'm really angry and upset that we made a mistake in this order and our customer is very unhappy. And I'm going to go for a walk to cool off because I'm so frustrated that we did this. It's very bad for the business. And then I want us to really, really be able to talk about what went wrong and how we can make sure it doesn't happen again. You can make an announcement about your emotional state. Mm -hmm. That's more fair, I think, than just hammering people for what went wrong. The other thing is, it feels terrible to be angry and upset. I mean, it actually feels bad, and it causes us not to think well. Neurologically, if we feel we're under threat, our brain shuts down some of our sensory uptake so that we narrow our field of vision. We actually have less peripheral vision if we're upset. We breathe faster. You know, all the fight, flight, freeze, fold, all those reactions are in play. Whereas if we can identify the emotion and almost separate ourselves from it just a little bit and say, I'm having a feeling of anger. I'm having a feeling of frustration. It gives a little room to calm our brains down and then be able to think again and go back to the idea of curiosity. Yeah. And wonder, how can we make sure this never happens again? And how can I, how can I get my team on board? So that they're not defensive, because if they're defensive, they're not hearing me. And if they're defensive, they're not changing. They're just holding on tight, trying not to be in pain. Mm -hmm. So let me show them I'm upset. And I also can take hearing the truth. And let's uncover the whole thing. Isn't it interesting what emotion is that the moment you acknowledge and even acknowledge it publicly about your feeling it reduced it by an, a lot. Negative emotion, when you spell it out, it reduces it by a lot. When you're joyous, you share it with other, the joy is amplified too. And I just thought it was really funny. You know, when it's positive, you share it, it amplified. When it's yeah. negative, it reduces it by a lot. And it's, uh, I found it that's very interesting. Yet people sometimes feel very scared to share their challenge because I mean I learned this a lot when I lost my husband when the hard part is become so hard and I realized when I share it it make it easier and then you know I just have this you know feedback format I was like oh when I did this it helped me so then I keep on doing it so that becomes my muscle now right Right. Some of that goes back to the idea of having real relationships with people. Because I think what you're talking about, Christine, works very well when you understand each other and care about each other already. Then it's not just the expression of the negative feeling, I'm having a bad experience now, whether it's because of a deep personal thing or whether it's because just something that goes wrong at work. 
but then people are more willing to help you and then you feel better too. You feel supported. And that really makes a difference. One of the worst things for a leader is when they're angry and frustrated and they feel unsupported. They feel that their concerns are rejected or not taken seriously. And that's often when they use the power of their authority mm-hmm. to act out because it's like a second wound on top of the original bad reaction. <laughs> if they don't, right? If they don't feel they get a good reaction right. from the people who are supposed to be helping them, which is why it's so important to be conscious of what you're experiencing. If you're working with employees who generally don't want to help you, you have to look at whether you picked the wrong ones or in some way made them uncomfortable with you so that they don't feel a natural tendency to come to your aid. Because if you chose the right ones and you treat them well, Mm -hmm. they're committed. Right. And they want to do what will work. Yeah. No, I I I am a big believer of that. And so one of the things that, you know, uh, your TED talk that I think that got us to talk is about, you know, why there's a lot of conflict at workplace and how do you do that? In I think there's no in, when people care, that's more oftentimes conflict, disagreement happen. Right. And I think it's all it's more about how do you manage I don't know if manage is the right word, to manage the disagreement in order to get the optimum outcome. And those are I think what you are uh saying. Tell us more about, you know, what's the best, you know the best approach that you've seen to do that. I actually don't think there's one best approach. I think there are general tendencies and then it depends on the nature of the conflict. Conflict just means that you and somebody else don't have the same opinion. And for some reason, you have negative feelings around that. They feel frightened. You feel aggravated. You could have a disagreement of opinion, a difference of opinion, and not feel bad. It is actually possible that you are looking at the design of some new marketing piece and one of you feels that it should be blue and the other of you feels it should be red. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have conflict. You might say, let's have a test. We'll try both. No conflict. Let the results decide. Um, or you might say, we'll take turns. There are many ways to have no conflict that are actually productive. If there aren't differences of opinion, though, you will never have overall as good solutions as you will if different people can share their different views and then you take the best of each. If a founder could do everything themselves and be successful, they wouldn't need other people, but they do. They need other people. And so you have to listen to them and then look at where are those opinions coming from. Another real reason for conflict is that we put structures in place that make it more difficult 
for people to feel that they are on the same page. Here's an example that could be very important to founders. If you set up compensation structures so that each person has the best chance at earning the most if they are the only one who wins, then you have the risk that they will try to outdo each other or not cooperate with each other because they want the most that they can get themselves. Whereas if you have some form of group targets and group compensation, which could be bonuses and it could be profit sharing and it could be gifts and it could just be a good time because sometimes when you're a founder at the beginning, there's no money at all. Um, But if they feel rewarded for achieving mutual goals, that's one way to reduce potential conflict. But again, it goes back to relationship and curiosity, so open questioning, clear communication, because another way that founders sometimes, without realizing it, cause conflict is if they talk to two different people about working on the same aspect of the business separately, and they tell them slightly different things, because of course we don't remember exactly what we said. Or they give them overlapping responsibilities. That's often the source of conflict. So looking at the sources of the conflict and trying to ameliorate those often gives you a better chance at only having good productive discussion when people have differences of opinion. So the overlapping, that's kind of um, something that I experience sometimes. It's not that being the leader that you provide, you know, Sometimes your direction might not be clear. Sometimes you think that, well, if you do overlapping, maybe then people can work together more. But then I think then everybody feeling like so the other person stepping on my toe and I might be stepping on your toe. We make them uncomfortable with that new dynamic. And what do you have that suggestion? You know, sometimes you're going with a good intention with the wrong outcome. And how do you, I mean, there's always a way to self-correct. I always tell my son, you know, there's always, you know, self-correct until the day you die. Yes, <laughs> I, I agree 100%. Yes. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is how do you, not everything is so clear cut, black and white, like this is the line, you're on the left, you're on the right. There's that, you know, but how do you navigate that? That's a great point because in today's world, more and more of every function and every decision have to be collaborative because they take different talents, all kinds of reasons. So one of the things that you do is you don't just speak to individuals. You don't create multiple dyads, pairs of you and one other person. As often as you can or as is reasonable, you bring people together and you talk about it together. Because then you can say, is everybody clear about what I want from them or what they're expected to do? Do you want to actually discuss your impression so that we can check with each other and make sure it's clear enough? That's one. Two. No matter what you do, 
in your communication, when people are actually doing the work, they may find circumstances that you didn't anticipate, they didn't anticipate. And so you could end back in that overlapped, challenging situation again. Well, when one of those things come up, let's just come together again and talk about what we really want and make the decision together. Mm-hmm. There are ways to keep checking back in. Sometimes because we're all so busy, we let people go too long following a different path, not the one we would choose. And I use the analogy of a drill. You can have a perfect drill, but if it's pointing in the wrong direction, you get a perfect hole somewhere it shouldn't be. If you have two people who are perfect in what they're doing, but they're heading away from each other, that might not be the result you want. So knowing, I'm not talking about checking on everybody every day, they'll feel totally micromanaged, but knowing the right interval for checking on the progress and making sure that everybody's making progress and feels reasonably comfortable about how it's going. People don't have to be ecstatic. They just have to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I think sometimes ecstatic is, uh, I always tell somebody, if you're ecstatic constantly, then it's not healthy. <laughs> but the right. best baseline has to be at least, you know, comfortable. And then you get the ups and down in a nice, good wave. Um, and so when you bring them together and then you discuss and then say, okay, who's going to do what? And at some point there's also a discussion. Well, you know, and people don't want to step on each other's toes sometimes. And then it's like, well, I'm okay to do it too, but you're, I'm okay if you're doing it too. And how do you solve that? Okay. That's a, that can be a trickier one because if everybody is, let's call it nice, Mm -hmm. nobody wants to be the bad guy. Right. And nobody wants to look like they're trying to order the other person around. Mm-hmm. So you can end up with a kind of stasis just because no one will go first. This then depends very much on what's actually happening in the organization. As the leader, sometimes it just makes sense to assign one person to get started and another time you assign a different person. So that in effect, you are giving them shared responsibility, but not at the same time. You define the project with a leader, and you let that person give the guidance to other people, and you're checking in to make sure it's going well. As an organization gets a little further down the path, though, you often have heads of different functions who may have competing responsibilities in some way. Um, Say the challenge is that your sales function really wants everything to be as customized to customer need as possible. And your operations or production function really wants everything as consistent as possible so they can, you know, make it cost efficient then everybody needs to make the business the business case for their opinion. The salespeople need to say, we believe 
that if we can present to sales to our customers in such and such a way, these are the likely outcomes. We'll get this number of sales. They'll have this kind of margin, et cetera, et cetera. So here's why it is worth the difficulty that we know it will create for our colleagues in production. And we are sympathetic to that difficulty. And we are willing to hear from our colleagues in production about parameters that would help them deal with the customization. Like maybe we're going to make it really special, but we create enough lead time for it. I don't know the, you know, the specifics. Or the people in production can say, when you come with all these tailored things, it costs so much more and we have to retool the machines and this is the difficulty. Whereas if you did it this straightforward way, we could make the cost so low that you could find extra value for customers someplace else and make a package that's worth it to them. Any of these things can be negotiated. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you have to justify your case with real data as opposed to just sharing your opinions of what will happen, that can often get people to dig deeper into the details. And then if you follow the logical trail, you end up coming up with a better answer. <laughs> Sometimes some of the points in one of the cases can be used to strengthen the other case. Right. I almost feel like if you take the emotion out, then oftentimes you make a more decision that you feel better about that there is no conflict. Because I think sometimes when you make a decision that involves a lot of conflict, it's really exhausting. I think the way you explain it, because, you know, there's only one you who's telling the story and it's just like, wow, you know, it, it totally makes sense. And how do you deal with, you know, because everybody works really hard so they can be having an emotional charge. And I, you know, I totally get it as a leader. Even if you know that, you know that, you know, okay, I'm very grumpy right now. This is, I'm going to go for a walk and I'll come back. And I always tell my son, you know, when I'm angry, it doesn't help when you say, you look like you're angry, right? And so how do you tell the team sometimes who got really invested in this and then they're, you know, uh, sounded like very defensive maybe, or you don't know whether they're kind of, kind of annoyed by it. And so they're like, I don't care, which you know is not true because they care. And how do you call it out so that everybody can bring to the table in more calm and rational and put their ego aside? Right. Some of the time you don't call it out, you close the meeting temporarily. And then you can go and talk to them. Mm. Sometimes calling it out in the meeting only tightens people up because then they have to reckon with their own emotions in front of everybody. That's real pressure. Sometimes we think that's only something that children go through. It's not. We all go through it. There are people who hide it better than other people, and sometimes they hide it from themselves. But we all have these reactions, and the question is whether we're suppressed or not. So it's very hard to challenge that way in the meeting. But as the leader, you have a lot of leeway to say, oh, we're going to take a break now. And then you speak to whoever is getting too wrapped up or whatever. 
And in the way you were saying to your son, what came to mind for me is saying to someone, I can see how much you care about this, or I can see how committed you are, or how much you want such and such a result. So let's think about how to present it in the best way possible. Help them make their case. As the leader, you can actually help everybody make the best case possible. The reason you want that, as opposed to hoping that one of them will win, it's your smarts, your creativity, your vision that is theoretically driving this whole process. If you contribute to each of their cases, won't the case be better? And then everybody can feel, oh, yeah, this is actually the right thing to do. So add to, Mm -hmm. don't take away from anybody, but add to, that doesn't mean you correct them all the time. That doesn't mean you speak over them or take them over. I'm talking about asking curious questions, like leading the witness so that they can bring the best of what they have as part of the conversation. The other thing is we're talking about a particular moment in time. If you observe that somebody has this kind of reaction frequently, the really helpful thing is to talk to them about the way they react when they feel under pressure. And you do that when they're not under pressure. Mm -hmm. And one of the best phrases you can use is, I noticed. I noticed that the last few times we had to talk about this hard subject, it was actually really hard for you. It was clear that you got upset. I appreciate how much dedication and effort and time you're putting into this, and I want it to be for the best effect. Talk to me about what it is that's upsetting to you, and let's see how we can make things smoother. Mm -hmm. You'll learn more about them. They will feel better understood. And you, as the leader, may find better ways to facilitate the interchanges between the parties. If you have this kind of thing going on all the time, and this is sort of like my TEDx, that's why you bring someone like me in Mm -hmm. to help everybody see and understand everybody else's point of view and to recognize when they are not helping themselves in the way that they express their own point of view. Right, right. And I think also what you mentioned earlier today about being a uh, mind reader is that, you know, the team can look at the leadership, you know, trying to read what's in their mind. But I think being a leader, sometimes you can also be aware about your team members' um, situation, their mood. And I think it's really helpful because I think some people, when they're stressed out, they can be more snappy and it doesn't help out for you to react to it. You can just like get out of the way and then because you know things will be done because that person's right in a high pressure and that's how they manage pressure. And I think, you know, being self-aware, I think it's, and being aware of your surrounding. And I think that takes a lot of observing and listening. Yeah. Having compassion gets you a long way. Mm -hmm. So that is about really understanding how other people are feeling and then taking action to help them get to a better place. So yes, if you've put people under terrible pressure, 
you have to be understanding when they're a little snappish. <laughs> but if they are too snappish for too long, particularly to your other employees, that hurts everybody <laughs> and you can't tolerate it. Right. Just because someone is functionally expert or is excellent at their tasks, if they're damaging the rest of your team, you can't tolerate that if you want to keep a team and have the whole group progress. That's only good if you want that individual to be successful in their function. It doesn't make them a successful leader mm-hmm. or a successful collaborator. Yeah. Well, that's great. I know we're short on time. I mean, I feel like we can talk a lot more. Um, I Last question uh, to wrap up is, so what are the three superpower word that you can think of that a leader needs to have in order to manage conflict in the work? You can already tell I hate limiting things <laughs> to just a couple of words. Okay, so I'm going to start with curiosity because if you don't want to know, you can't fix anything. So curiosity comes first. And then I would say self-regulation because if you can't manage yourself, you can't make anything better. And then the third thing is really compassion. It is caring for the other people in a way that helps you always keep the larger purpose in mind and brings them along so that they see that it is worth self-managing to serve the larger purpose. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. It's been so fun to learn from you. I really have enjoyed it tremendously, Christine. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.